Chapter Twenty Five of the Goddess of Atvatabar by William Richard Bradshaw. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nigel Fisher. Escaping from the cyclone, the ship lifting her prow would spring into the sky upon the bosom of the whirling waste of air. The sun was completely obscured by dense masses of flying clouds, and we were deluged with torrents of water. The terror of the situation obliterated all thoughts of country or home or friends. All worldly consciousness had evaporated from the pale beings that in despair held onto the ship for life or death. The ravages of the storm on the earth beneath could be heard with startling distinctness. We heard at times the roaring of forests and saw the shrieking whirling branches in every earth-illuminating flash of lightning. The goddess stood holding onto the outer rail of the deck, the incarnation of courage. She had risen to meet the danger at its worst. The Aerifer, having risen to an enormous height, being thrown completely out of the tempest as if shot from a catapult, turned to descend again. It flew downward like an arrow, filling every soul, save perhaps that of Leone, with fear. All were resigned for death. There could be no escape from the destruction that threatened us. All this time the centre of the storm had been travelling to the southeast, or about forty-five degrees out of our proper course. Suddenly the ship shot downward from the southeastern limb of the storm, which almost reached the earth at this point. Gazing below, we discovered a fearful chasm in the face of the earth towards which we were rapidly flying. It was the canyon of the river Sabagil, a merciless abyss about ten thousand feet in depth. Frightful as was the scene, it might yet prove our salvation if the ship could escape colliding with the precipitous walls. Were there no abyss, we would certainly be dashed to pieces on the earth itself. Suddenly the ship heeled over fifty degrees, flinging its living freight violently against the houses on the deck and the lower rail. But we were saved. One side of the deck grazed the precipice as it plunged into the canyon. We had passed through the danger before knowing what had happened. Leone was stunned but safe. The captain had a dislocated wrist, and others had broken limbs, but none was fatally hurt. It was a terrible experience. As the canyon of the river led in a northeasterly direction, we did not emerge from the shelter it gave us to seek fresh conflict with the cyclone, but kept flying between the formidable walls. We soon knew by the returning sunlight and the silver clouds that the hurricane had died away. The damage done to the aerifer was quickly repaired. The ceaseless humming of the fans revolving on axles of hollow steel lulled our senses once more into dreamy repose. Ah, said Leone, this is life. I feel as though I were a bird or a disembodied spirit. This aerial navigation is the realisation of those aspirations of men that they might, like birds, possess the sky. Some have wished to enjoy submarine travel, to explore those frightful abysses of ocean where sea monsters dwell, to behold the conflict of sharks in their native element, to see the swordfish bury his spear in the colossal whale. I prefer this upper sphere of sunlight and the dome of forests, mountains and valleys of the dear old earth. You are right, said I. The world into which we are born is our true habitat. The walls of the canyon grew wider apart until we floated in a valley two miles wide. The meadowland below us was carpeted with grass and covered with clumps of forest trees, down the middle of which ran the river, green and swift. The walls of the valley here rose twelve thousand feet in perpendicular height, prodigies of stone, stained in barbaric colours by the brushes of ages. Here and there triumphant cataracts flashed from the heights and fell in torrents of foam to the valley below, Sometimes a tributary of the river dashed furiously from the battlements above us into the abyss, flinging clouds of spray on the tops of the trees beneath. 
The Erifa maintained a uniform height of 5,000 feet, sufficiently high to give us the exultation of a bird, yet sufficiently deep to allow the sublimity of the scene to fully impress us. The musicians, who had hitherto remained in abeyance, now broke the silence of our progress with a swelling strain. The music rolled echoing from granite to jasper walls in strains of divine pathos. We seemed to sail through the fabled realm of enchantment. In that little moving heaven, ceremony was dissolved into a thrilling friendship. The harmonious surroundings created a closer union of souls. Above where I sat with Leone, there floated a flag of yellow silk a hundred feet in length. As it floated on the wind, it assumed a varying series of poetic shapes, very beautiful to witness. Sometimes there was a long, sinuous fold, then a number of rippling waves, then a second fold, only shorter than the first, then more rippling waves. It was a symbol of the soul and of the goddess, and represented the fascination and poetry that belongs to the adepts of Harakar. Its folds changed momentarily. At times there would be one large central curve like a Moorish arch, flanked on either side by a number of lesser arches. Again the flag streamed in throbbing waves, frequently blown by an intense breath of wind, straight as a spear, crackling and shivering like a soul in pain. It responded not only to the motion of the ship, but had an independent life of its own. You see, said Leone, that the spiritual part of our creed is but the development of this independent life of the soul. The spiritual nature responds to the opportunity worthy of its recognition. That is but the mechanical law of cause and effect, I ventured. Where does self-sacrifice come in? I do not quite understand, she replied. Self-sacrifice is the first law of the soul. What I mean, I said, is this. Having discovered your counterpart, do you adore despite the circumstances of fortune? Most certainly, she replied. There is the divinest self-sacrifice on both sides as far as the fortunes of each will permit. Ideally, the sacrifice is unlimited, but practically is limited as to time, opportunity and other circumstances. Is the counterpart's soul loved in spite of disparity of circumstances? Or is an equality of circumstances such as rank, wealth and nationality, etc. a factor in the case, I inquired? Outward circumstances have nothing whatever to do with the matter, said Leone. Friends, wealth, rank, everything is thrown aside in favour of the inward circumstances that the two souls are one. But, I urged, you expose your spiritual creed to very violent shocks at times. The king of today may be a beggar tomorrow, and besides, one or both of two souls may, before they have known each other, have been freighted with lifelong responsibilities. How, then, do you prevent a catastrophe to someone? I admit, she said, that as far as the everyday world is concerned, there are serious difficulties to contend with, but we avoid these by creating a little world of our own, exclusively for the cultivation of the spiritual soul. Just as some people apply themselves to physical culture to become athletes and show how grand the physical man may become, so we set apart a number of people as soul priests to develop spirituality or power over themselves and others and power over matter. It was for this object that Egyplosis was founded, to form a fitting environment for those who have achieved the ideal life. This life, fully ripened, with its fresh and glorious enjoyment, can be maintained for a hundred years, without diminution or loss of ecstasy. And do you mean that, after living one hundred years, beginning with your twentieth birthday, you are still only commencing your twenty-first year? That is exactly what I mean, said Leone. I myself have lived ten years of Nirvana, and am yet only twenty years old. I could well believe that such glorious freshness and beauty as hers was quite as young as she had represented it, but it was a strange idea, this achievement of an earthly nirvana. Do you believe in the independent life of the soul after death? I inquired. 
I believe that as our bodies, when they die, become reabsorbed into the bosom of nature, to become in part or whole reincarnated in other forms of life, so also our souls are reabsorbed into the great ocean of existence, to dwell in time wholly or in part in some other form of life or love. End of chapter 25